beginning to work in your mind as an operating system. So when you need it, it's at your ready, right? Every day you go out for the run or you build your fitness. And when you need to be able to move around, you're ready to move well because you've trained your body. And this is about training your mind. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy, folks. It is RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits, and we are excited to bring you another amazing guest today. We are talking to Cheryl Einhorn and her her subject matter is it's it's remarkable it's the it's how do we how do we make good decisions right so you know you hear a lot of commentary in life you know people make great decisions poor decisions and there seems to be some level of science attributed to how these decisions are made but the reality is when you really look at things, a lot of the decisions that people make that result in poor or good decisions are generally made arbitrarily, right? They're quite random. There might be some perceptions, some fact-finding, but there really isn't any methodology out there as to how we can make good decisions. So we typically rely on our gut, right? The consensus among the community, among people, is that you should always trust their gut. Well, Cheryl asked the question, what do you do or how do you know when your inner voice and your gut is lying to you? You know, we all have biases. We all have ways of operating. As Cheryl puts it, we all have mental shortcuts that are all there to help us discern and move through a large amount of information and make quick decisions based on the limited amount of information we have. The question is, how do we know we're making the right decision? And what is the cost of making poor decisions? And as we go into that in the show, Cheryl outlines a few examples of the catastrophe caused when decisions are made with poor information, with biases, with groupthink, without an actual process. And that's what we're here to unpack on the show today. Cheryl has created a methodology which helps us in a scientific process-driven way come to decisions. You know, I asked her the question as to why haven't we been taught about good decision-making in school? And I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that. I think it's a hard thing to do. It's quite subjective and no one is really, particularly in the education system, thought about tackling that. And I, I really commend and wanted to get Cheryl on the show. I read an article on the HBR and then I dove into her TED talk, which is fascinating. And we unpack in detail on the show today what good decision-making looks like from a process perspective and how we can remain as objective as possible, and if that's even possible, so that we can actually make decisions that are impacting our environment and people in the most positive way possible. Anyways, folks, 
fascinating conversation. I do hope you enjoy it. We're coming to the end of season four. We've got a couple more episodes, and then we're going to relaunch season five in the new year with a completely new revamped format. We'll be doing things differently in the fifth season. That will be um, a conversation that I'm going to be having in future future podcast where I'm a guest on um, a show and we're going to be talking about all things podcast. I'll release some more information about that. I'm going to be talking about how this show is actually going to be evolving in the future uh, to better hit the mark. Anyways, folks, I'm out of here. I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Cheryl. Please rate this podcast. If you haven't already, go to the website, check us out at www.ultrahabits.co. Anyways, folks, have a fantastic week. Peace out. Cheryl, welcome to Ultra Habits. Super excited to have you on the show. We finally made it here. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I read the Harvard Business Review every day, and I'm always looking for insights and articles that really move me. And I've come across a couple of uh, your articles, and I, you know, I particularly the the last one, um, and I felt like I really needed. To get you on the show. So again, thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to unpack some really good stuff today. So we're we're talking about decision making, right? And you know, there's a, a Vedantic philosophy around how we perceive things. So I'm a, I'm a I'm a philosophical person. I'm a student of philosophy, and there's a parabell around the snake and the rope. And it's a story about how we perceive a snake, but in reality, it's a rope. And then what happens is we perceive this snake and then our whole attitude and way of being conforms to that, right? And I really resonate with that. You overlay that in, you know, in society where we're always told about following our gut, our true north, these two polarities can create some confusion, right? Like, how do we know when we're traveling down the right path and our intuition is correct versus how do we know when we're seeing a snake? How do we know when our inner voice is misleading us? So I would start off by saying that we can learn to identify that we're not our inner voice that that voice is telling us things through the dirty windshield of the past, through what we now understand to be these cognitive biases, which are the natural mental mistakes that we all have. And those mistakes are there for a couple of different reasons. One, it's our brains trying to protect us and keep us from what it perceives to be danger or difficult emotions. The second thing is it can be trying to speed us up by giving us answers from the past. And the third is that we have different things that we value in our decisions. And so um, many times these biases will be from a place of trying to guide us through something that may not at all be what's going on in the present. And so asking ourselves to find a little bit of time to take what I call a cheetah pause, 
which sounds simple and yet is so difficult, is a way that we can better interact with that gut or that intuition. So the cheetah paws is a mnemonic for how to build in a strategic stop in our decision-making. And I like this visual cue because the cheetah is the fastest land animal accelerating up to 60 miles an hour in about three seconds, but it can slow down up to nine miles an hour in a single stride. And the reason why that's powerful, especially as an athlete, as somebody who thinks about performance, is now you're talking about agility, flexibility, maneuverability. And those are all the things that you want to take into account when dealing with your gut and with decision making. Fundamentally, do you want to do what you've done before? Because your gut is going to guide you to do that. And even if you've done that before and it's worked out well, how is this situation different from that moment in the past so that you can take into account what else is going on and choose whether or not to go with your gut. That's a really, really interesting point. Like when I, when I look at my day and I'm naturally an impulsive person, but the roles that I am in demand me to be more strategic and patient. And I really am continually assessing my agility in terms of quick movement versus when do I need to stop and take time. And people that know me and work with me, they think it's a bit of an enigma in terms of how I'm able to be impulsive when I need to be and make decisions quickly versus I'll stop and stagger and maybe wait for a day or two or three. And I think it's a skill that we need to hone, particularly in executive land, we need to move, but we also need to know when to pause and really think about the decisions that we're making. And I, I, I that really resonates with me. Now, I'm going to ask you a question here. For an individual that is operating solely from their gut, and they're not, let's say, using the, the tools to slow down the cheetah paws, what is the negative or what are the negative outcomes of that? Like, how would a person know that they're probably making decisions from the hit a bit too much? What does the negative fallout typically look like for a person that is engaged in that style of decision making? If you think that you're moving too quickly, first, you've identified that you're moving too quickly, right? But second, what I would say is that you might encounter the emotion regret. And regret is a very powerful and one of the most popular negative emotions that people experience. And regret is fundamentally an emotion about our decision-making. So when you think about the fact, oh, I moved too quickly, what you may come away with is that you've made a subpar decision because you've been moving too fast, or maybe you haven't collected enough data, or maybe you haven't checked the data that you have and those assumptions against evidence. Maybe you haven't learned from experts. So there's many ways that moving too quickly can get you to feel like you're not actually arriving 
at the best outcome possible or the best possible outcome. Are there scenarios where you would say people are moving too slowly? There's like the the opposite? Absolutely. There are people who have what might popularly be called analysis paralysis. In my research, I've identified five different dominant decision-making archetypes. I call them problem-solver profiles. I have a new book coming out about this called Problem Solver, which will come out in February. And basically, one of the key traits of one of the archetypes that I call the thinker is this idea that they really like to understand their possible options and the consequences, and that they are, in fact, often deciding with a kind of loss aversion as one of the cognitive biases that can really get in the way for them. And so if they're worried about the downside and loss aversion, and avoiding bad outcomes, you could really see how you could stay in the decision-making without actually making the decision. You know, we all, particularly in executive land, live in in a world where there's ambiguity and maybe a limited amount of information. How do you know when you're better off moving with, let's say, 70 or 75% of the information? I have a chapter in my new book on the difference between uncertainty and ambiguity. And I actually did write an article for Harvard Business Review on this topic. With uncertainty, you're never going to mitigate all of it because that's the future, right? And the future always has unknown elements to it. Ambiguity is not really about the future. Ambiguity is something that's a judgment call. Ambiguity is something that lacks specificity. And this is one of the things that I address as one of the core pieces of my decision-making system that I call the AREA method. AREA is an acronym for the steps of my decision-making process that uniquely controls for cognitive bias and allows you to expand your knowledge while improving your judgment. So a term like, gee, I'd like to raise good kids, that's an ambiguous term. That's not an uncertain term. So the question becomes, how do you define good kids? Now, the way you and I define good kids might be totally different, and that's perfectly fine, but that's exactly why it's ambiguous. Are good kids kids who interact well with adults, or kids who are good at team sports, or kids who are good academically, or some other combination of what could be good kid? And so with terms that are ambiguous, It's up to you to determine what they mean specifically to you. And so the vision of success is at the beginning of problem solving, instead of saying, how am I going to solve this problem, which is open-ended and N equals all, that could be off-putting or frustrating. Instead, invert the problem solving and start by asking yourself the following question. What has to happen in the outcome? of my decision for me to know that it has been a success, personally or professionally. You can answer that question without knowing how you're going to make the decision. Because once you have answered that question, in that answer, in that vision of success, are usually a couple terms that are ambiguous, such as good kids. 
And then you would derive what I call your critical concepts using the noun or noun phrases in that statement and ask yourself, so what? What does that mean to me? And by identifying the critical concepts in the vision of success, you've now laid down a pathway. Where am I getting to? Well, that's the vision of success. That's where you want to end up because you've determined that that is what is going to be a decision that you will feel successful for you. And you now know what to investigate because you've identified with specificity those critical concepts. Well, if good kid is defined by kids who are well-connected to their parents and are able to have quality time so that we can work on their morals and their ethics together and so on, well, then maybe the travel soccer team doesn't work because now you can't have family dinners. And so what you're able to do is you can see how this technique of vision of success can give you the boundaries of your decision and make ambiguous terms more concrete so you know why you're solving what you're solving and what you uniquely deem to be a successful outcome in defining that term. Okay, well that that's that's brilliant. So let's unpack that. So if I'm hearing this correctly, ambiguity is mitigated through getting clear on the outcome you're trying to achieve and then working backwards. Now, are you saying uncertainty is more complex to mitigate because it's dealing more with the future? Like, Well, you're never going to mitigate uncertainty, right? Because you don't know what the next 10 minutes is going to bring, right? You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So uncertainty, you can't completely plan for. You can triangulate right? And you can decide what really has to be understood and whether or not you can understand those things. But you're not trying to get to perfect information. I think what you're trying to get for instead is what do I really need to deeply and creatively investigate so that I know that when I've done the research, that I've understood those variables Because if those few things fail, nothing else works. And that's why defining and differentiating ambiguity from uncertainty becomes so empowering. I'm just, I'm thinking about this and my feeling tells me that, you know, a person would have to have a certain level of awareness to execute on the principles we're discussing here, like even if they could objectively grasp your framework to actually have the discipline, the wherewithal and willingness to hold space, that is like a, that, that requires a bit of self-awareness. Like how much of the personal development path is required in terms of being able to execute your framework, right? Because I would have, I would imagine it takes a person that is quite willing to to hold their views and their biases. We're talking about some deep stuff here. You're not trying to hold back your biases. The area method is fundamentally an acknowledgement that we're all flawed thinkers. I created it because I wanted to do a more ethical job at work where I was, I wanted a way that could help me better check and challenge my assumptions and my judgment. So the idea is that we're not, again, we're not looking for 
perfection at all. Instead, area is an acknowledgement that we all could use assistance in being able to think about how do we gather information? How do we include others? And how do we think about different analysis tools that shed different interpretation on the data that we've collected? And then how do we think about failure? And I go through all the different steps of the area method in my first book, Problem Solved, and in my second book, Investing in Financial Research. The first book, Problem Solved, is on personal and professional decision-making, and the second book, Investing in Financial Research, is about business, economic, financial, and investment decisions. And I think what you're getting at, though, the bigger point is that we have never learned how to be decision-makers. We make tens of thousands of decisions every day. Some researchers say up to 40,000 decisions a day. From what side of the bed to get up on in the morning to what kind of a late night snack. Cornell tells us we make over 200 decisions a day about food alone, but we don't learn decision-making in school and we don't learn it in a formal way in our homes. And that's why I set out to write these books, to teach, to work and coach people, to put together professional development programs, because there's two kinds of learning. There's knowledge and there's skill. And to me, decision-making is a skill, which means I can teach it to you. And then those skills can be yours. Have you ever thought about teaching this to kids? Absolutely. And I have had a program in high schools, um, working with the Department of Education for the New York City public schools and also some schools in other places around the country. And it's definitely been an area of interest for me in part because I have three kids, but also because it's really the beginning of identity formation. And it's a time where they're beginning to question a lot of different things and they're being introduced to a lot of different learning techniques. And so it's a beautiful place where they're really open to learning about who they are as a decision maker and what kind of skills can really amplify the agency that they can have in the world. I really think your work is really important because I think we all could benefit living in a world where we're making decisions by what is objectively good, what is the needful thing, right? And I think that a lot of the chaos in society, particularly that we're seeing in recent times, is on the back of people making decisions that are fundamentally driven by their biases and colored by the way they see the world versus what is the needful and right thing for the collective. And I think that's why your work is really important, giving us a framework to move beyond those biases and look at, well, what's the greater context and how do I actually add real value could be transformative to a society, if you really think about it, at, at an aspirational level. Yeah, I think, if, you know, the idea that we can learn about our decision making and that we have, can have greater agency and satisfaction in our decisions, I think is really exciting because it doesn't matter where you're entering into this idea through the arc of life. It can help you at any moment in time. I would say that 
you talked about when to lean into the cognitive biases. And I wanted to circle back to answer that because when we're making small decisions, what kind of eggs to buy at the supermarket, for instance, and nobody has food allergies, for instance, you want to be able to lean on those cognitive biases. They're very useful. They help you to get in and get out of the supermarket. At the same time, when you are making what I call a high stakes decision, that's when you really want to have learned the skills of a decision-making system. I define high stakes in three ways. It's a decision with an unknown outcome and the future always is unknown. It's a decision where the impact is gonna be long-term and it's a decision where if you get it wrong, the price to you is going to be costly. When that happens, that's when you wanna really be slowing down and using a system like AREA. And I would just say one more thing, Reading a book like Problem Solved, a book on decision-making, is not just for when you are absolutely facing that big decision that's ahead of you. Reading it at any time is one of those things where it's like taking a vitamin, right? Or it's like exercise. You are reading about something and learning about the skills so it's beginning to work in your mind as an operating system. So when you need it, it's at your ready, right? Every day you go out for the run or you build your fitness. And when you need to be able to move around, you're ready to move well because you've trained your body. And this is about training your mind. Yeah, I like that. We're all about that at Ultra Habits. Um, and now I'm going to ask you, in terms of challenging our expectation, how can we make better decisions by challenging our expectations? What does that actually mean? So I think there's four common sense, easy ways that we can challenge our expectations. The first is we can gather data. We can go do research. The second is we can check our assumptions with evidence, meaning check for facts. Right. The third is we can talk to people who know us personally as a decision maker, where we're good, where maybe we could use some assistance and what we value. And the fourth thing is we can learn from experts. All of these solutions, they're free. They're accessible to anybody. And there are four different ways to think about how to challenge and check our expectations. When we're engaging others in your TED Talk, um, you know, you talked about the importance of collecting data through engaging others. How do you ensure that, you know, you're not being influenced by other people's cognitive biases? Like, how do you then take that information as an executive from your team and then ensure that you're making decisions that are objectively good versus the, you know, the, the circus that we all live in, where people may be making or giving us input based on their own cognitive biases, their own desires, their own needs. Is there, is there a way to assess that? So first, I would just say objectively good is ambiguous, right? So what you're considering objectively good and what I consider objectively good may or may not be the same thing. But when it comes to gathering information, the area method has a very specific recommendation 
for how we collect information from the different stakeholders. So the way to think about the area method in the big picture is that we normally, when we're solving a problem, type the question into Google and up comes many answers. And we don't have any sense of who are those storytellers? Do they value what I value in the decision? Do we want to buy a car for the same reason or for the same price point or for the same accoutrements? And so what the area method does is it's the opposite of Google, right? It basically says you don't want to start in all the voices without knowing what they value and what's important because incentives matter. Incentives drive behavior. And instead, you collect information first from absolute, that's the first step of the area method, from up close on the target of your decision. And then you layer in the next layer of bias, which would be relative voices, voices related to the target, but not from the target. Then from there, you move beyond document-based information that you've collected in absolute and in relative, and you engage with what I call the twin engines of creativity, exploration. You expand your research by interviewing people to understand the difference between the map and the terrain. And then in exploitation, you're excavating your own inner assumptions and you're testing them with evidence with creative exercises that I've learned from experts in other fields like medicine or investigative journalism. And then in the final analysis phase, you're going to pause and think about failure to strength test your decision before you actually go ahead and execute on the decision. And so there's a very specific way that you're conducting the research to get up close on each of the stakeholders, understand their incentives, And by using this perspective taking, you're pushing yourself out of your own viewpoint, which makes it easier not only to understand somebody else's motivation, but to bubble up what am I thinking and feeling, and therefore to notice where you're making assumptions and judgments. Do you think ultimately people make decisions based on a feeling? Do you think the ultimate decision maker generally, even after we go through a model like this, is a feeling? So that's an interesting question. And I just wrote an article for that on Harvard Business Review on a technique that I call emotional bookending. Um, And one of the things that I've noticed is for many people, we have a big decision ahead of us. And we also have a difficult emotion associated with it. And when those two things occur at the same time, the emotion can be so difficult that we react to the emotion and not to the decision, which means that we are interacting negatively with our decisions. We're basically responding to that emotion and we're just trying to escape it. So this technique of emotional bookending, the article summarizes it. I actually think it's more complex than the space for the article. But the basic idea is, can you identify that emotion? I'm feeling worry or I'm feeling conflict or what is that emotion that is also there as you're thinking about the decision? If you can name it and label it, that's the first step to being able to put language to it gain some distance on it, and then to think about 
What's really behind that emotion? Why am I feeling that? And then you can better examine it. And then you can say to yourself, okay, if I now bookend the decision, if I've made this decision well, what's the emotion I want to feel at the end? Is it that I've checked and challenged my assumptions or I've strengthened a relationship or that I am doing something bold, whatever that answer is, whatever that final emotion is, can you identify how you want to feel at the end? And again, you can see then what's the emotional journey you'd like to be on so that you're not responding to this moment of discomfort in emotion where you are at the beginning. And again, that can help to bring forward your wizard brain, our cognition, and tamp down while paying homage to that lizard brain of the emotions that we have. That, that's brilliant. I, it, um, it, would, um, it sounds like it takes a bit of emotional maturity to be able to hold that. And um, I, I resonate with that. And I, I completely uh, agree with what you're saying. I think that, you know, we get hijacked during big decisions. And a lot of us, and I'm guilty of this, will approach that decision with the bias of that emotion. And it doesn't necessarily serve me. Well, now I want to just say one thing though. You keep using the term hold this. And I want to just note that we should not be trying to solve these problems in our head. We tend to think that we're rational human beings, but we're not because we do have these cognitive biases. And because I'm also thinking about dinner and the fact that the dog needs a bath, right? It's noisy in our head. And so one of the best ways to help yourself in your decision-making is to recognize that you're not holding it and write it down. Because the minute that you've had to put it down on paper, on your computer, you've got to translate it. And that's a lot of thinking. To get it from your mind into a notebook or something. When you think about it, the greatest, some of the greatest thinkers, whether it's Einstein or Leonardo da Vinci, these people kept many notebooks. And so I often think about, it's not, um, it's not as nice to ourselves to think that we have to hold it in our head because if those brilliant thinkers benefited from writing it down, we probably all can benefit from that as well. That's brilliant. And, And I do agree with that. When I refer to hold space, what I mean is not pulling the trigger on a decision. Right. So being comfortable with complexity and then doing the needed next step. Right. So that may be journaling, getting it out from my head onto paper so I can start to see it um, outside of my mind. I think that when we, you know, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous, we do inventories every night. And we do these written inventories because we want to become more objective. And then we share this with our sponsors, right? You know, what are our fears, our insecurities, what's come up through the day? When I refer to hold space, I mean having the bandwidth to not pull the trigger on that emotion um, and then doing what's needed to then deal with that, right? So that might be an inventory or writing it down or to your point taking note, but I feel for me, that's taken quite a lot of 
emotional maturity and time to be able to develop that space between thought and reaction, right? Um, and I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's great work um, and, and work that we all need to do um, for us to live a better life, to make better decisions. I want to talk about some of the myths around decision making. So, can you can you unpack that for us, Cheryl? What are some of the myths out there? Yeah. So this was something else I wrote an article about for Harvard Business Review, and something that I'm now building out um, into into a longer piece um, because I've been collecting anecdotes from people all over the world and how they engage with the decision myths. I think you know one of the myths we've been talking about. I am rational. We'd love to think that we're rational, but we're not. Um, another one that's really popular is I like to be efficient, but efficiency is about productivity. It's not about efficacy or I don't need research. I have all the information that I need. Um, generally there's more research out there that you could do and you could check your assumptions and that would give you greater confidence and maybe even conviction in your decision-making. Um, Another one that we just talked about is, you know, I can solve this in my head, but as we talked about, it's very noisy in there. Um, another one is there's only one way to do this. Um, and I think, you know, maybe what you were talking about earlier about some of the things going on in the world is, you know, more and more people um, seem to feel that there's a worry that people do think that there's one right way to do something. But there's usually more than one good way to do something. Another key one is that it's my decision alone. I think this has been a huge disservice in how we think about our decisions because it's just not true. At some level, just about every single decision has another stakeholder involved in it. And if we want to truly solve any of the world's problems, the first thing that we need to do is how to be able to help each other get along better. So recognizing that we need to include others in our decision-making to really holistically solve our problems, I think that that would be a great myth to understand that it is a myth and not to think that our decisions are solo endeavors. So that's just a couple examples. You know, I, I did some work with a, a young um, founder, entrepreneur, and his team was off put by him. And I think he struggled with the fact that way that he saw himself, others didn't see him that way. And a big part of how he conducted himself was like, the burdens is all on me. I know what needs to be done. And people were off put by that because what was obvious was that the decisions he was making and the things that we're doing were all done to serve his narrative, which ultimately was tied to his ego. And people saw that. And there was this disconnect because he was wondering why people didn't follow. Right. But people resented him because they felt that their work wasn't valued. Their voice wasn't heard. And that they were commoditized by a guru who seemed to be all-knowing. 
And I think that encompasses everything you just talked about in those myths and and and, and uh, biases. And so, um, yeah. Um, well, look, what I want to do is talk and shift the conversation over to work you've done in the past. Like, how have you seen things go horribly wrong when decisions have been made through cognitive biases or a bad framework of decision making like have you are there circumstances that have been kind of really negative or diabolical in terms of outcomes that you've witnessed and been seen or been part of absolutely you know you can end up where you haven't taken in all the information or you haven't even noticed the information that was right in front of you or you moved too quickly or um, you didn't really take into account the other people properly, all the things you just mentioned, all of those can lead to hurting relationships and to being able maybe to just solve this problem in this moment without really solving the highest leverage, the underlying problem. You've mentioned um, in your TED Talk, you know, there was a really beautiful story uh, about a guy in Nepal that, you know, was thinking about doing X. He ultimately did Y. Can you share that story for our audience? Because I think that's a really good news story about how an individual uh, leveraged the framework and decision-making to do what was needed versus maybe what he felt he should have done at first. Sure. In my first book, Problem Solved, I chronicle this particular story of an amazing young man whose name is John Christopher, who is the founder and chief executive of a nonprofit that delivers basic health care in rural Nepal called the Oda Foundation, after the region where it operates. And he came to me to work with me because he wanted to expand his charity. And that evening was the devastating earthquake in Nepal that killed over 10,000 people. And so suddenly he needed, he needed this plan yesterday. How was he going to immediately use the resources of his basic healthcare charity to deliver more healthcare in a country that had just changed overnight? And initially he had three different options for how to expand his care. One would be to open a second clinic in a much busier area. The second idea would be to partner with the government, which had a network of healthcare clinics throughout the country, but the government had a bad reputation for delivering care. And then the third option was to drop medicine and um, and medical supplies by using drones. This third option quickly fell away because Nepal doesn't have internet and you really need that to operate drones in a very consistent way. So he used my area method. And in the TED Talk and in the book, I take you step-by-step around how he initially really favored opening a second clinic. He knew how to open a clinic. His clinic was very successful. And so he immediately wanted to lean into those cognitive biases of going with what he thought he already knew. 
but over the entire journey of the area method, what he realized is if he had gone ahead and opened that second clinic, he probably would have bankrupted the charity. He did not realize that the population size was different, that the types of problems that people experienced might be on the core companies, competencies of the type of medical professionals who he had working with him and so on. And what he ultimately realized by using area was that he could devise a strategy to work within the government's clinics that kept his reputation and his organization separate and could be easily replicable. So after testing it in a few of these centers that the government had, he could quickly expand this out to many centers. And he came up with a very creative way to sort of maintain ODA's reputation as an independent organization, but to have people in the community where that first clinic was travel to other communities and vouch for the efficacy of the care, quality of the care, and the fact that it was separate and distinct from the government. So having a process like area where you really check and challenge your assumptions and you have a specific logical progression that holds your hand all the way through on what is a quality due diligence process brought him to an outcome that he never would have gotten to had he initially just reacted and started to open a second clinic. Yeah, it's a great story. It's a great story of achieving an outcome, achieving the outcome you were looking for, but being a bit more diverse in your approach, right? And I. I really like that story. So, Cheryl, we're gonna we're gonna start to land the plane here. Before we do, we always ask our guest. Uh, you know, we're we're a habits show, ultra habits. We always like to ask our guest how individuals can start to habituate some of the subject matter expertise that you're giving us. So, if I'm an individual that's starting to look to make better decisions, like let's just say my decisions are always horrible and I'm regretting everything all the time. Like it'd be a pretty bad place to be, but let's just say, you know, decisions are poor. I'm, I'm getting a, a lot of bad feedback in my life from my decisions. Like what are some of the things I could do immediately to start to shift that in terms of how I start to habituate better decision-making in, in my life? So I think one of the first things that you can do is build your awareness. What is decision-making? It is such a big topic. Read a book like Problem Solved. Watch the TED Talk that you've been talking about. Take what I call my Problem Solver Profile, which you can find on my website at areamethod.com, information about the area method and different decision-making skills. And on the bottom of the website, you can click to app areamethod.com. And this is some of the brand new research about the five different dominant types of problem solvers that people tend to be and the strengths of the different kinds, as well as the blind spots, those key cognitive biases that you want to build some awareness of so that you can really think about how to become a stronger and more dynamic decision maker. And at app.areamethod.com, you take a self-assessment, and at the end, it will tell you which of these problem-solver profiles you are and a little bit about it. 
And then this new book, Problem Solver, is coming out in February. And you can read about what are the implications of having the problem solver profile that I have, who are the other problem solvers in my life, and how might I identify which problem solver profile they might be? What does it mean for how I use data, how I think about risk, how I think about situationality, the different environments that I operate in, and what does it mean to become more dynamic? And so I think starting with reading and with learning about decision-making is really a good place to begin. Well, thank you so much for your time, Cheryl. I really, really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing the strength, the wisdom. It, um, it's a, a brilliant topic and something that I think we should all be looking to learn more about. How can we make better decisions? So again, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me today and for your terrific questions. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much.